Hello, readers. Benjamin Avalo received his BA in European history from Penn and an MD from Yale. During his life, he has spent time in Washington, D.C., lecturing, writing, and lobbying Congress about nuclear arms policy. And he's the author of the new book, How the West Brought War to Ukraine, understanding how U.S. and NATO policies led to crisis, war, and the risk of nuclear catastrophe. Ben, thank you so much for the time. How are you doing today? I'm okay, Trey. Thank you. So the goal of this book, as you stated in the introduction, was really to dispel the Western narrative about what is happening with the war inside Ukraine right now. Although it's not necessarily trying to give a pass to Putin for the decision that he made to invade earlier this year, you do a great job of explaining 30 years of provocations that really started with the disbanding of the Soviet Union. Many have said that NATO expanding into Eastern Europe has contributed to the tensions, but you say that that thought is actually incomplete. How so? Yeah, well, I think it's very true. And if I had to pick a single thing, maybe I would say NATO. But the reality is that um, a lot of countries, and especially the U.S., have been arming Ukraine and doing military exercises with Ukraine, either just bilateral U.S.-Ukraine training, arming, or these big multilateral exercises where, you know, 8, 10, 15 countries are doing these big military exercises associated with Ukraine right on Russia's border that are actually not part of NATO. So sometimes when people, they talk about NATO, they say, oh, you know, NATO, that's not a problem because Ukraine's not even a member of NATO yet. And in fact, it's not likely they're going to join so quickly. But they're completely forgetting about the fact that there's all kinds of other stuff going on. And as part of that, they're actually, you know, working toward bringing Ukraine up to NATO standards, even militarily, even though it's not in NATO. So uh, I think I say it's um, it's, you know, the, the question of NATO expansion is real, but it's incomplete. And people just don't really. Number one, it's kind of an abstraction. They don't really understand what NATO expansion means in a military sense. And number two, they're just uh, they're kind of forgetting about the fact that yeah, if if you put a um, a certain weapon in Ukraine through NATO versus through the U.S. or through the U.K., what's the difference? It's pointing at Russia. It's on their border. Um, so that, that's where I was going with that. So chapter one is Western provocations from 1990 to 2014. And there's been a lot of arguing, especially uh, over the last nine months or so, as to whether NATO actually promised not to expand east in 1990. Well, this was never written down as part of any formal agreement. That doesn't mean that it wasn't promised. So the question becomes, Ben, why would it have been promised back then as part of maybe some larger negotiation that it would have been attached to at the time? Yeah. Yeah. Uh... You know, this is a time, uh, 1990, 91, when the two Germanys, East and West Germany, were going to reunify. Uh, It was already clear that that was happening and uh, or that that was, you know, that people wanted that to happen. And it seemed like it was going to happen. And the question was, what would be the form of that reunification? Uh, And the Soviet Union still existed at that time. Now, the Soviet Union had... Uh, about 4,000 troops in East Germany. And the West, of course, wanted the East and West Germany to reunify under NATO auspices. So you can't have, you know, 400,000, almost a half million uh, Soviet troops sitting in East Germany and have this whole thing come together 
as a uh, something, you know, essentially a Western type state under uh, NATO auspices uh, with these Soviet Union's troops there. So one of the ways that the U.S. and other Western countries tried basically to mollify Moscow to make them comfortable to remove their troops is to give a set of assurances that uh, after the unification of Germany, that NATO would not expand, you know, moving into other countries to the east of Germany. Um, in fact, it uh, was not even going to expand uh, east of the Elbe River, which pretty much divided East and West Germany. So uh, th there were quite a set of assurances. People oftentimes will talk about uh, James Baker, and he did have discussions with Gorbachev. And if you, you can find those documents online, one can form their own judgments about what he didn't say. But uh, quite a few countries were involved in this. And there's documentation. Anyone who's interested in this can search uh, there's a organization called the National Security Archive of George Washington University. It's basically a, an academic project associated with George Washington University. And they have a, um, a whole documentary set of evidence connected with this question. Uh, and they also provide a detailed summary uh, and assessment of the, from the people who run that uh, website uh, to explain you know, the nature of the assurances. Uh, there's also a paper by a, um, a researcher at Boston University named Joshua Schifferson, published in the journal um, International Security, where he went into the U.S. archives and dug into what was being said to, uh, you know, what was being said to the Soviets and what was actually being said back in the U.S. And it seems quite clear that while there was no formal written legally binding treaties that a variety of countries, including the U.S., really did offer assurances that this expansion would not happen, but it did happen. Yeah. And that's important to understand because we're at the beginning of an attempt to regain trust between these two sides. And immediately you have, uh, well, maybe not quite immediately, but uh, soon thereafter, you do have an erosion of that trust when NATO does expand to three different countries at the end of the century that would be Hungary, Poland, and the Czech Republic. Why was the inclusion of Poland important as it relates to Russian relations, Ben? Yeah, well, one issue with Poland is they have a long history of a, a kind of um, Russophobia, really. I mean, they, of course, had a troubled relationship with the Soviet Union. Uh, there's uh, basically other problems associated where there's been a great deal of animosity coming from Poland toward Russia. And in fact, that still exists. Um, uh, so one of the concerns, and this has been had been raised by a number of people at that time, is that, you know, you can't bring, uh, you know, it's, it's it's a problem enough expanding NATO, but to bring a country in that is overtly hostile to Russia, um, that that is even, you know, a kind of a worst provocation. Uh, and the idea that you would have a hostile country, then an overtly hostile country to Russia as part of NATO and possibly influencing their policy was something that you know could only have been very disturbing to Russia. I'll give you one quick, quick example, you know, give you a sense of the, the hostility from Poland that exists even now. Uh, so, you know, this whole question of the pipeline being uh, exploded, uh, the, the bombing of the uh, gas pipelines, um, uh, Nord Stream one and two. So there is a uh, a man there named uh, uh, Radek Sikorsky. He's actually the white. He's actually the husband of um, Anne Applebaum, who's a hmm. quite a conservative um, uh, American writer. 
Um, and Sikorsky, right after this um, uh, explosions, he posted on his Twitter account a picture of you know the, the gas bubbling up through the ocean. Uh, and it basically said, thank you, USA. Um, and he basically, you know, pulled it off. And that was actually quite an interesting thing because number one, he had, he's somebody who's a, a member of the European Parliament. And uh, earlier than that, he was actually basically the, uh, the Polish foreign minister, who's somebody who, you know, not only has strong anti-Russian feelings, but may actually have inside information about what happened. Um, and then he, you know, he pulled that offline. But, you know, that, that statement even coming now uh, gives you a sense of some of the hostility and some of the tension between Poland and Russia. So, so those three countries were added in 1999. Two years later, in the fall of 2001, George W. Bush withdrew the U.S. from the Anti-Ballistic Missile Treaty, the ABM, which was originally signed in 1972. It was the first time in recent history that the U.S. had withdrawn from a major international arms treaty even though it happened after 9-11, Ben, that wasn't the given explanation as to why. So why did it happen then? Uh, you know, my understanding, this is one of the areas I would like to look into more deeply, but my understanding is the primary reason was that uh, Bush wanted to move forward with um, a kind of a Star Wars defense program. Uh, and they felt that this ABM treaty would, uh, you know, inhibit that and get in the way of that. Uh, now, of course, the argument against leaving the treaty is, you know, several fold. One is that the, uh, uh, you know, you really, uh, Star Wars programs do not work. They're very easy to overwhelm. Uh, you know, all you have to do is add more warheads or even dummy warheads, and you can overwhelm whatever defenses are in place. So the whole idea that this could actually provide a protection is kind of a fantasy. Uh, but beyond that, it's it's very important that uh, ABM treaties not go forward because even if they're not effective, the extent that one side fears that the other side might actually be able to, let's say, launch a first strike and then, you know, prevent the retaliatory strike from coming in, which is an essential part of kind of mutually assured destruction. Uh, this is something that really can create a lot of instability. It creates the, uh, even if can't do this in reality, it can create an image in the mind of a country that the other country thinks it can attack first without having to worry about the counterattack. And that, of course, can sort of destabilize the whole situation. It can, the country that fears being attacked first now feels itself pushed more towards a launch on warning policy. They don't even want to wait for the missiles to arrive because they're afraid they may not be able to retaliate at that point. Uh, so these are some of the problems with, with withdrawal from the treaty. In 2004, NATO expanded again, this time into Romania and Estonia, the latter of which, of course, is on the Russian border. And at a NATO summit in 2008, NATO announced its intentions of adding Georgia and Ukraine as members. This yeah. was an idea that was being pushed hard by the U.S. So why did it end up not happening? Yeah, I mean, uh, the reality is that the U.S. is one of the more aggressive and assertive members. I mean, first of all, it's, it basically runs NATO uh, to a large extent. If, if the U.S. wants something to happen within NATO, you know, they're the major funder within NATO in terms of military power, the greatest military power. They have the most influence in NATO. So uh, the main reason why it didn't, I mean, the uh, this memorandum, it's sometimes referred to as the Bucharest Memorandum, as the conference took place in, in uh, Romania, um, uh, was that uh, Germany and France did not want 
uh, they were concerned at what would happen if if membership was offered to to uh, Georgia and to Ukraine. So they opposed this idea. But George Bush, uh, this is um, uh, George W. Bush, the second Bush, you know, really wanted this to go forward. And uh, uh, what was eventually done was a compromise. There was an affirmative statement that Ukraine and Georgia would join NATO uh, or quote unquote, will become members of NATO, uh, but that because of the opposition, mostly of France and Germany, there was not immediate action to take them in. in. There was no you know, uh, membership action plan. There was none of the steps that would be taken to immediately bring them in. And that's really been the status ever since. And the US has refused to, and NATO has refused to renounce this quote unquote, open door policy that yes, Ukraine and Georgia will become members of NATO, we're just not saying quite yet when. Uh, that's the official policy now. And at what point did Russia wage its five-day war with Georgia as a sort of response to this news? Yeah, um, about four months after this open door announcement of uh, you know we NATO uh, uh, Ukraine and Georgia will become members of NATO, um, there was actually it's it's sort of a complicated story, but. The, the the kind of the short version of it would be, and I, I can go into more details if you want, but the short version is simply that in response to this ongoing NATO expansion and the threat that Georgia, which is also right on Russia's border, uh, separated by a, a kind of a range of mountains, but still on the border, um, uh, the threat that Georgia would become a member of NATO uh, ultimately played an important role in, the, in uh, Russia you know, crossing the border and entering into Georgia. Now, what actually precipitated this, people oftentimes incorrectly describe this as kind of an unprovoked invasion of Georgia. And in fact, the story I just told, although it's very important, could actually leave that impression, but it, it's a, quite a different story, the reality. Um, Georgia has two uh, semi-autonomous regions on their northern border. Uh, one of them is sort of on the western, northwestern border, and one is kind of uh, central northern border. Um, and the central one, right up against Russia's border, is called South Ossetia. And there have been conflicts between South Ossetia and the main government in Georgia for, you know, for a long time before that. Uh, and South Ossetia had an ongoing relationship with Russia. Um, and what actually happened is that uh, NATO... Uh, Actually, forgive me, it wasn't NATO. It was the U.S. led a multinational uh, military exercise in Georgia uh, with 2,000 troops in Georgia at that point. At that time, also, uh, Mikhail Saakashvili, who was the uh, Georgian president, uh, had a very close relationship with the U.S. and NATO and was trying to get into NATO. He was basically a, a pawn of the U.S., really. Um, and what happened uh, two weeks after this military exercises ended is that the central Georgian government launched kind of a massive artillery and rocket assault on South Ossetia. Uh, and this went on for, I think it was 24 hours. And ultimately the uh, European Union funded an independent study and basically determined that this was massive artillery and rocket attacks on uh, um, uh, non-military civilian areas within South Ossetia. And what actually happened is Russia, and then they then they invaded South Ossetia with their land forces as well after this massive assault. Uh, and then at that point, Russia went in through a, there's a tunnel that connects, goes through the mountains that connects Russia to South Ossetia. And it was only then that Russia went in. 
further complicating things, uh, South Ossetia had a peacekeeping force there, which included Russian soldiers. And some of these soldiers were actually killed during the South, South Ossetian attacks. So uh, in some sense, they went in to protect their peacekeepers. Those peacekeepers were there for, uh, I think it was 92, if I recall, uh, under an international agreement. And when the EU evaluated the whole thing, they actually determined that it may have been justified under international law for Russia to actually enter the country in response to the killing of their peacekeepers. Mm. Um, now, the EU also qualified and they said, on the other hand, this has been an ongoing long-term conflict between South Ossetia and Georgia, and, and uh, we don't totally exonerate Russia, uh, but the immediate cause was certainly this attack by, South, by, South, by, South, uh, by Georgia on South Ossetia. So, you know, you really have that, and when you take that in the context of NATO expansion, this occurring just four months after uh, this open-door declaration at Bucharest, um, it, it really fits together. This was in some way a response uh, by uh, Russia to the expansion of NATO and to an attack on what was sort of its de facto ally right on Russia's border. Fast forwarding now to late 2013, early 2014 in Ukraine, far right Ukrainian ultra nationalist uh, pulled a coup. In Ukraine, late 2013, early 2014, that forced its democratically elected pro-Russia president to flee the country. Now, I know there's a conversation to be had about yeah. Russia paying billions of dollars to this guy as a, a way to uh, earn his support and uh, his siding with Russia on a lot of different international issues. But just how much support did this coup receive from the U.S. and how do we know? Yeah, I mean, the, the two pieces that we know uh, most strongly uh, excuse me one second. The, the two pieces we know most strongly are, uh, number one, Victoria Newland, who was then assistant, uh, what was she? She was assistant secretary of state for uh, European and Eurasian affairs. Basically the, the, the state department official most immediately responsible for that area. Uh, in 2013, she uh, was recorded. You can find the thing, find the video on YouTube. I actually have the link in my book. I have the links also to the National Security Archive and to uh, Joshua Schiffenson's article on, on the whole question of the assurances that uh, were given to Russia too. But um, uh, Newland stated just, you know, boldly that the U.S. had spent over five billion dollars on "quote unquote" democracy promotion in Ukraine, and that's basically. You know, working behind the scenes to do what you can to overturn the current government. Uh, it's, you know, it's ostensibly done in a very benign way that you are just promoting democracy. You're trying to spread Western values of freedom, etc. But it often goes well beyond that. Uh, and it's impossible to know how far it goes beyond it. Uh, oftentimes there's connections with the CIA. Um, but even if we take it at the most basic level that the U.S. had spent billions and billions of dollars uh, and was actually involved in trying to coordinate the protests. Uh, Victoria Newland herself was walking around giving away, uh, you know, cake and uh, to the protesters. Hmm. Um, now, where things really started getting interesting was in early February 2014, a uh, phone conversation between Victoria Newland, again, Assistant Secretary of State for um, uh, European and Eurasian Affairs, and the U.S. Ambassador to Ukraine, Jeffrey Pyatt. A, uh, a secret phone call that they had was uh, either intercepted or leaked. Uh, most people think it was probably intercepted by Russian uh, security. 
and it was basically posted. It was uh, handed over to Wikipedia, uh, Wikipedia, uh, WikiLeaks. Excuse me, you got my wikis mixed up. Um, uh, and it was quite an extraordinary conversation where they were basically picking who was going to be the next prime minister. And this is three weeks before the events happened. So you have, you know, senior members of the U.S. State Department discussing who should be the next prime minister and doing it in a way that really indicated that they could control the situation. Um, so that was qu quite extraordinary. Uh, and then a few weeks later, one of the things that's complicated is you often hear the protests referred to as the uh, the revolution of dignity, or they refer to as a real democratic uprising. And the thing that's complicated is that there really were democratic elements. There were people, especially within Kiev, but um, or Kiev, however you want to say it, uh, that were um, that really were opposed to the corruption in the Yanukovych regime. He was the sitting president. That really were. Uh, did want the U, uh, Ukraine to join the European Union and in the business relationships. Um, and there were, you know, real protests about that. But what actually happened was that the Ukrainian far right basically moved in and uh, took a major role in the protests. And actually, you know, people call them, you know, fascists or neo-fascists or Nazi, neo-Nazis and whatever they are, whatever name is most appropriate, they certainly were far right, ultra-nationalist, and they were armed and they took over government buildings. And the best evidence available is actually that this faction that uh, basically subverted the, uh, you know, the um, more or less peaceful demonstrations actually opened fire on the peaceful demonstrators and killed close to a hundred people as a false flag attack to try to uh, arouse support for the new regime. And this was actually all, again, I linked to this in, in the, I don't discuss this in detail in the main body, but I, in the relevant footnote, I, I linked to it. There's a, Cana a Ukrainian Canadian researcher named Ivan Kachanovsky, who basically did the, the heavy lifting on this. And he's the one who determined that this really was a, a false flag attack, um, uh, which is kind of remarkable because it was actually that killing of those uh, protesters that led to the recognition both by the US and by the world media of the new regime. Um, so it, it's uh, quite an extraordinary set of events. Um, I also wanna mention that um, uh, although it's very true that money was given from Russia to, uh, to Ukraine as part of trying to uh, keep their connection with them, that the majority of Ukrainians actually wanted to maintain financial relationships with Russia. Um, you know, there were a small number that wanted to get rid of their relationship with Russia and just uh, establish an association with the European Union. But the majority either wanted to maintain it solely with with um, uh, I'm sorry, I said I said Soviet Union, Russia, either the majority wanted to stay uh, exclusively with Russia or wanted to have it with both. And there were actually terms in the European Union Association Agreement that in effect required Ukraine to uh, basically side with NATO militarily and also to uh, effectively renounce economic relationships with Russia. So what Russia really did was they said, you know, they, they seem to be open to actually having joint relationships with, you know, three-way Ukraine, Russia, and the European Union. But this seemed to be precluded by the European uh, offer 
And uh, Russia ultimately just, and there were also financial reasons why it might not have been a good deal for Ukraine. Uh, but ultimately what happened is uh, Russia gave a, a chunk of money to Ukraine, and they also uh, made a deal where they would get uh, very steep discounts on Russian gas, um, uh, kind of in exchange for establishing this. So I, I, you know, the Yanukovych regime, I mean, Ukraine has a long history of uh, corruption and I'm, you know, I don't know all the details now, but I would suspect there's pretty serious corruption currently. But um, uh, uh, I cannot rule out some sort of direct corrupt connection between Russia and Yanukovych uh, in terms of this deal. But what is known is that they were very above board financial arrangements that actually seemed very much in Ukraine's uh, interest to maintain connections with Russia. And there were specific things about the uh, uh, about the European Union offering that really made it a very bad deal for Ukraine in many respects. And then on top of that, uh, public opinion surveys, as I mentioned, actually indicated that the majority of Ukrainians wanted to maintain economic relationship with Russia. And that was actually a survey that was done by the USAID the U.S. Agency for International Development, which, you know, if you're looking for uh, a survey that, if anything, would be biased in the direction that the U.S. wanted, uh, that survey itself uh, showed that the majority of Ukrainians wanted to maintain relationships. So th this, um, although there was certainly was a very real uh, democratic element to these protests, um, the, the story that's told that this was somehow, uh, you know, you know, the takeover of the government and all this stuff was just a legitimate um, uprising, a popular uprising is is uh, really not accurate. Uh, it's much more complicated than that and seems to point to uh, violent extremist, effectively murderous elements within Ukraine that played a crucial role in the killings that led to the recognition of the new government. Yeah, I want to add on to your political co uh, corruption comment. Let's not act like political corruption is unique to Russia and Ukraine. Politics and corruption go hand in hand, just like peanut butter and jelly, Ben. Uh, yeah. What was Russia's response to the 2014 coup? Uh, what was Russia's response? You know, the most immediate and most important response was that they uh, basically took over Crimea. Uh, and the major uh, concern there seemed to have been, and it was really a valid concern, you know, although Crimea had been part of Russia for, had been part of Ukraine for several decades, it was basically given to, uh, it was given to Ukraine by Khrushchev, even though for effectively two centuries before that it had been part of Russia. And nobody really knows clearly why Khrushchev gave this to Ukraine. Uh, I think uh, Khrushchev was Ukrainian by birth. Um, and, uh, you know, there's a sort of a story that basically he got drunk and gave it away in a poker game or something. <laughs> but um, uh, but uh, the important part for I think for our story is that there's a major naval base um, in Crimea at, in the area of Sebastopol. And this is the major Black Sea uh, naval base of Russia. And they had a long term lease. Uh, signed with Ukraine. It was going to last until probably uh, 2047, uh, where Russia basically had use of that base. And with this take, and it, it's vitally important, this is a warm water base. It means it doesn't freeze over in the winter. You can, you know, if you have a base that uh, is not a warm water base, 
basically your, your base becomes inoperative or extremely difficult to op operate in the wintertime. Uh, and that's, you know, if that's your, a major base, you can't have that. So uh, there was a very legitimate concern within Russia that uh, Ukraine was at that point, which was in now in possession of uh, Crimea, was going to actually hand over the naval base to uh, NATO. Um, and Russia, you know, you know, this would kill half their Navy. Um, they just felt that they had to go in and take this base. They could not, in terms of their own military security, let this go. There were other things that were going on within the country that were deeply affecting the Russian-speaking population in a very bad way. Some of those uh, policies were walked back over time, uh, but there's basically been a great deal of hostility towards the Russian population. Uh, or, you know, and, and it's complicated there. There's Russian-speaking, there's culturally Russian, they overlap, but not completely. Uh, so there's a lot of complicated uh, elements to this, but, uh, you know, and then of course there was this whole uh, conflict in the Donbass, which has been going on since 2014. Um, but uh, I, you know, the, the story that to me is most compelling about why Russia went into Crimea really had to do with this um, naval base, uh, that they felt this along with everything else, along with NATO on their borders, along with NATO pushing up, as you said, into Estonia, uh, uh, you know, establishing relationships with Georgia, although they never brought Georgia in. Uh, this idea that uh, that Ukraine could literally hand over their most important Black Sea base uh, to NATO, I think, was just a, a, a killer for them. And they just said, this is it. We're, we're, we're going to secure this piece of land for ourselves. And this leads us into Chapter 2, Western Provocations from 2014 to 2022, after Russia takes control of Crimea, the U.S. really intensifies its presence in that part of the world. That includes pumping more than $4 billion in military aid into Ukraine. And this was in the eight years before the war started earlier this year. Yeah. What did the U.S. do in Romania in 2016 that further fueled tensions with Russia? Yeah, uh, I mean, this had actually been initiated earlier, but... Uh... The uh, uh, the U.S. established a uh, an ABM anti ballistic missile uh, station in Romania. Uh, I think that they may have actually started work on that, like in 20, uh, 2010 or twenty eleven. I'm forgetting some of these numbers now, but uh, this became operational in I think it was twenty sixteen. This is an anti ballistic missile base um, uh, in Romania. It has uh, twenty four launch tubes that when, when used in the ABM mode, uh, it can launch 24 anti-ballistic missiles and shoot down uh, you know, incoming uh, warheads. Now, the US claimed that, oh, this is not directed against Russia. This is to prevent Europe from being attacked by nuclear missiles from uh, Iran or North Korea, uh, which you know is kind of implausible, uh, I think. But um, the... What was, I think, especially troubling to Russia was that this is a multi-use set of launch tubes. And those tubes, uh, they can accommodate anti-ballistic missiles that can shoot down warheads or shoot down incoming ICBMs. But they can also, within 24 hours, be completely switched over to load nuclear warhead Tomahawk missiles with a 1,500-mile range that can hit Moscow and other targets in Russia, deep into Russia. 
And these warheads, they have what's called the selectable yield. You can basically dial a yield, how much, how much kilotons you want. And those warheads could go up to 150 kilotons, which is 10 times the Hiroshima bomb. Uh, so now you're talking about something, uh, you know, a NATO country that was, uh, assurances were given, we're not gonna come into NATO, uh, Romania, uh, that now you have set up an ABM uh, base uh, after the unilateral abrogation of the ABM treaty by the US and the particular hardware that you happen to put in there is a Mark 41 launch system made by Lockheed Martin that is a highly flexible system that can accommodate not only Tomahawk nuclear tip cruise missiles but other nuclear tip cruise other nuclear missiles. Um, so you have this kind of confluence of events pushing right up towards Russia's border um, and uh, you know it, it's 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 quite extraordinary. And there were a number of other things that were even more striking than that. Um, by the way, uh, uh, I think it's not operational yet. It could be by now. But there's actually another one of these uh, Mark Forty One ABM bases that is is being built in Poland and is set to go into operation this year. The reason why I hesitate is that we're already in November, uh, October now. Mm. Uh, this base is set to go into operation in 2022. I just don't know what month. And it's possible that in the midst of everything that's going on with the Ukraine war, this new ABM base with another 24 launch tubes directed at Russia, or with, uh, let's just put it, let's just say with uh, compatible with uh, Russia-directed nuclear weapons, uh, may actually have gone into uh, operation in, in Poland already. Uh, and if it didn't, then, uh, 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 you know, it's set to go into operation very soon. So there's, there's a lot that's happening. So for those wondering if this Ukrainian flirtation and Russian instigation continued under Donald Trump, it did. In 2017, they start selling lethal weapons to Ukraine, which was a change in policy from the three previous years. Yeah. And in 2019, the U.S. withdrew from another treaty, this one on intermediate-range nuclear weapons. Is the significance basically speaking to all the stuff that you had just talked about there? Yeah, I mean, from a Russian... Yeah, so this... Uh, let me just give a little more background. So the withdrawal of the something called the Intermediate-Range Nuclear Forces Treaty, these are land-to-land -land or ground-to-ground -ground missiles that are longer-range than, like, tactical battlefield rockets that, you know, a few hundred mile range and much shorter and shorter than these intercontinental weapons like ICBMs, but they're significant uh, ranges. They have ranges that range between, let's say, 500 and 5,500 kilometers. Um, and this treaty was basically to prevent, uh, you know, a set of arms races uh, where the U.S. would be placing uh, nuclear weapons in, uh, directed at Russia within Europe, and Russia might be tempted to place weapons, you know, closer to the U.S. border. Um, uh, the U.S. withdrew unilaterally. There were accusations by the U.S. that Russia treated, cheated. Russia had accusations that the U.S. treated, uh, cheated. And in fact, these ABMs, there was a question of whether that was actually even allowable under this because they could accommodate these other weapons. Um, but uh, the important part is that the U.S. actually, in the end, unilaterally withdrew. Russia really wanted to try to negotiate again about these uh, the question of violations and try to come to an understanding and keep the treaty in effect. Um, 
And, you know, it's possible that uh, one or both sides actually were in violation. It's possible that neither side was. These are complicated technical issues, but they required negotiation and discussion and resolution. Russia really wanted to resolve them. The U.S. just pulled out uh, unilaterally. And in fact, even after the U.S. pulled out, Russia offered uh, a moratorium that they said, look, okay, we're out of the treaty now. And one reason why maybe you, U.S., pulled out is you wanted to be able to counter you know, new nuclear weapons in China. So let's, we'll stay out of the treaty. You do what you want with China. We'll do what we want with China. But let's, in terms of the weapons directed at ourselves, let's come to a moratorium and agree that neither side will deploy new weapons. And the U.S. refused that as well. Um, so there really was a very uh, aggressive stance. And what the evidence appears to be is that the, uh, the U.S. just felt that they might be able to obtain a kind of tactical, uh, you know, short-term strategic, uh, uh, I'm using multiple terms here, technically. you know, th they could obtain a kind of um, uh, theater range, intermediate range advantage over Russia by leaving this treaty. Uh, now, of course, there was no, no, no attention paid to the fact that, of course, when the U.S. leaves, Russia is going to start, you know, going wild and developing all kinds of new weapons and maybe even putting them on barges off U.S. territory and things of this nature, which is, you know, Russia has actually developed a whole set of new weapons in response to this. But, um, uh, you know, this was sort of another thoughtless, uh, provocative move by the U.S. that was taken for what uh, U.S. perceived to, I don't even want to say U.S., let's call it certain U.S. foreign policy and military elites. I don't want to suggest that this is actually in the U.S. advantage or to the U.S. benefit, um, uh, that they took uh, action that they perceived to be in the uh, to the advantage of the United States uh, in a way that was extremely provocative and, if anything, would greatly increase the risk to the United States over time. Uh, and, you know, I mean, look at this war. This, this war is the outcome of all these steps that the U.S. and NATO took ostensibly to uh, increase their security, but doing so in a way that was, you know, done with almost total disregard for Russia's security and Russia's legitimate security concerns. That's right. Another one of those examples is something you touched on briefly at the start of this conversation. That is in 2020 and 2021, NATO flexed its military muscle by conducting live fire training exercises in Estonia, just 70 miles from Russia's border. I mean, people listening right now should think about if uh, you had uh, the shoe was on the other foot and something like this was happening 70 miles from the U.S. border with a group that we didn't have all that much trust in, uh, that that would be a recipe for disaster. That would be a recipe, a recipe for some sort of response. Also in 2021, Ben, the U.S. and NATO diplomacy with Ukraine really intensified. In June, NATO repeated a desire to add Ukraine as a member. In August, the U.S. and Ukraine uh, signed a strategic defense framework. And in early November, the U.S. Secretary of State and Ukraine Foreign Minister signed a similar document titled the U.S.-Ukraine Charter on Strategic Partnership. What was the intent of this latter agreement? Yeah, boy, you raised a ton of important issues in, in one, uh, one go right there. Let me just go back to the beginning of what you said before I talk about some of these other uh, moves. Uh, I just want to provide a little more background and let your viewers understand a little more fully what happened in Estonia in 20 and 2021. Sure. So just to set the stage, 
Uh, again, we're talking about a country, Estonia, in the Baltics, right on Russia's border, uh, a country that is part of NATO, that was one of those many countries that assurances had been given that NATO would not expand into. So the starting point is this uh, uh, country that by assurances should never have been part of NATO in the first place. Uh, now in 20 and 2021, uh, a series of live fire rocket exercises were undertaken in uh, Estonia, as you mentioned, 70 miles from Russia's border, using rockets that had a range of approximately 300 miles. That is a range that could enter into Russian territory. And the training exercises were specifically designed to practice destroying air defense systems inside Russia. Now, I'm not saying that the U.S. was intending to launch any kind of preemptive attack. Uh, or that NATO was intending to do that. Uh, this was done ostensibly as part of a plan. What would we do if Russia invaded Western Europe? Well, you know, one of the things you might want to do is, you know, try to, you know, hit behind their lines and things of this nature. So I'm not suggesting that the U.S. really was planning a preemptive attack, but whether they were or weren't, you got to look at how this looks for Russia. Uh, you know, you're plan, you're looking at. Uh, an assault, a planning an assault, and practicing an assault, live fire, which means that these missiles actually took off. They just didn't have the warheads. And of course, they didn't cross over into Russian territory. But this was to fully certify the crews so they could really fire these things. Um, and to target air defense systems, which are defensive systems inside Russia, not offensive systems, adds like another layer of threat onto the whole thing you know, from a Russian perspective, the thought has got to be, what the hell are they doing targeting our defensive systems from territory that never should have been part of NATO, uh, you know, right on our border? And as you said, you know, just picture what how the U.S. would react if somehow Russia established a relationship with Canada or Mexico and set up military forces there and started practicing destroying targets inside the U.S. I mean, you would, you know, there, there would be an immediate demand for removal of this stuff. And it wouldn't be, you know, years and years of requests like Russia was doing. It would have been a demand. And if it hadn't been, that demand had not been acted on forthwith, uh, you know, the U.S. probably would have launched a preemptive attack. And, you know, we, you know, they probably would have entered into World War III over this. So, uh, you know, as you said, putting the shoe on the other foot, and that's actually the title of one of the chapters in my book, uh, it, it gives you a sense uh, by focusing on how the U.S. might respond if Russia did this to the US, it, I think it provides a kind of psychological insight into what might be going on in the heads of people inside Russia, both ordinary citizens, but also politicians and uh, military planners in Russia. You know, the US would say, well, we were really just thinking about defensive maneuvers. I mean, if Russia went into to, um, uh, Canada and did these tests and said, well, you know, don't, don't worry about this. We're not really, you know, you don't, that's not how people think. That's not how the military thinks. That's not how they should think. You've got to look at the hardware. You've got to look at the capacity of that hardware. You, in effect, disregard stated intentions. And this is one reason why arms control treaties are so important, because nobody really trusts some statement by some guy saying, oh, yeah, we're not going to cause you a problem. What you have to do is get verifiable treaties that restrain the deployment of weapons. And that's the one hard, in fact, thing that you can really go to the bank on. Uh, so, uh, anyway, uh, 
as you said further, in 2021, a series of things happened irrespective of these actions. Uh, first, NATO had another meeting, I believe it was in Brussels, that reaffirmed the 2008 statement that said Ukraine and Georgia will become members of NATO. And then both the State Department and the Department of Defense, the US State Department and the Department of Defense in separate actions signed independent bilateral treaties with Ukraine, not through NATO, uh, that on the one hand affirmed the NATO statement that Ukraine and Georgia would become members of NATO, and on the other hand established uh, expanded military development that were designed to bring Ukraine up to NATO military standards. Um, so, you know, at the same time, you've got these live fire exercises going on, you've got NATO reaffirming entry, you've got the U.S. State Department and Department of Defense signing new and independent treaties with Ukraine that involve militarily arming. Uh, you have the deployment of uh, these uh, already deployed weapons in Romania and the slated deployment of these offensive capable launch systems in Poland. Uh, you know, Russia really just said this is completely unacceptable. You're right on our border. You're making massive threats to us. And at that point, they started massing troops on their border. Interestingly, and this is was reported in The Intercept uh, uh, in, uh, uh, in March, early March, that uh, based on reports from uh, U.S. intelligence services, uh, I'm trying to remember if it was U.S. intelligence services or uh, 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 conversations with U.S. military uh, senior officers um, that uh, Putin had not even decided to invade until February 2022. This was not something where they were massing troops and planning a long-term invasion. What this seems to me the most plausible explanation is that they were trying to signal to the United States that they were extremely serious, that they took the threat to their security from all these steps, very serious, and they needed to negotiate um, a decision that Ukraine would not join NATO, that NATO forces would back away from Russia's border. Uh, and then there, I, there may have been questions about uh, some kind of partial autonomy from the Donbass territories. Um, uh, so it's, uh, it's kind of an extraordinary set of events and the evidence points to the, uh, the fact that Russia was not even planning to do an attack but it was only when the U.S. completely and just said, forget it, we're not going to talk to you about NATO. Uh, and you can find statements by, uh, uh, by U.S. Uh, um, people in the State Department that basically say, yeah, NATO was off the table. That was not even something we were willing to discuss. So it was only when the U.S. really just said, forget it, we're not going to even discuss NATO with you, that at that point, I think, uh, Russia decided that they really have to go in. Uh, I'm not saying it was a wise decision. Anytime you and anytime you're launching an attack that involves deaths of civilian population, you know I, I cannot approve of that. Um, but if you look at this in terms of how countries react internationally and how the U.S. would react in an equivalent situation with a shoe on the other foot, uh, you know you can certainly understand why they did what they did. Definitely provide some context. So we're nine months into this conflict now. We've seen a serious escalation in October. You mentioned uh, Nord Stream 1 and 2 having giant holes blown <laughs> into them. Uh, the uh, A major bridge that connects Russia to Crimea, seriously damaged by an explosion, not taken down altogether, but damaged to the point that Russia decided to respond with a number of attacks 
throughout the uh, the country of Ukraine that has literally knocked 30 percent of power out to that country right now. What do you think the immediate future holds for this conflict, Ben? Yeah, boy, it's uh, it's very disturbing. Uh, and uh, I don't have a clear formulation of what the immediate future holds. I mean, there's certainly been a large escalation that's occurred. I mean, this destruction of the Nord Stream pipelines, which is itself maybe we want to talk about, but um, uh, you know, the attack on the Crimean Bridge. And I think also you have to take into account, I mean, you know, Russia has been looking for negotiations from the start of the war. Um, they view, uh, uh, they view diplomacy and militarism as being tightly integrated, a kind of Clausewitzian idea that, you know, diplomacy and, uh, uh, you know, war is uh, diplomacy by other means and diplomacy is war by other means. So I think that Russia really from the beginning was looking to negotiate a peace treaty. Uh, and in fact, in March, uh, uh, Ukraine and Russia were negotiating. There was a 15 point program on the table and it looked like they were gonna go ahead and actually have a settlement. Uh, and at that point, Boris Johnson showed up in uh, Ukraine and basically told uh, Zelensky, you may be ready for peace, but we're not ready. This hmm. was actually reported in the Ukrainian uh, publication, uh, Ukrainska Pravda. And then it was subsequently, the main outlines were validated by a report in the uh, uh, journal Foreign Affairs. Um, so this is for real, that there really likely would have been a peace treaty in March, but it was sabotaged by Boris Johnson, who was then prime minister of uh, uh, UK. And in fact, it's very likely that Johnson would not have taken such a step without the US approval. And it's quite possible it was actually a US plan that was being carried out by Johnson. Um, so I think on top of the fact that you have this ongoing war, that you've had some uh, successes by the Ukrainian military, uh, uh, the fact that the U.S. has refused to have negotiations of any sort with Russia to move towards peace, and then the attack on the bridge, and perhaps the pipeline attack was played into this, uh, which again, you know, many people are assuming that was done by Russia, which I think is a very bad and wrong assumption, but let's even leave that out of the picture. Um, I think Russia basically just decided, you know, we're fighting with one hand tied behind our back. Uh, it's been widely acknowledged you know, the Western media does not like to say it. They they talk, they like to talk about war crimes. They like to talk about, you know, uh, crazy attacks on civilian populations. This was actually quite a carefully controlled military operation. Uh, if you look at the numbers of forces, the force deployments, if you look at numbers of civilian casualties compared to military casualties, there are a lot of variables that suggest this was extremely limited. And it was only when all these things came together, and I think Putin started to feel under pressure from people within his own government, you know, that we are fighting with one hand tied behind our backs, that now at that point, they decided to uh, undertake more significant uh, attacks on Ukrainian infrastructure, especially electricity. And it seems the primary reason they wanted to disrupt electrically driven transport of arms and troops that were occurring within Ukraine, especially the transport of troops from the western border of Ukraine, where they were being staged in Poland and other places and moved towards the fronts. And by attacking the electrical grid, uh, that is one way to disrupt the, the train service and other forms of troop and, and supply transport within Ukraine. So even here, although there have been some civilian deaths, if you actually look at the numbers, they appear to be quite limited. 
These were not unconstrained attacks on civilian populations in Russia. These were uh, targeted attacks on infrastructure, especially electrical infrastructure, uh, that seems to have been done primarily to disrupt military operations. Uh, again, I'm not in favor of what happened here in this war. Uh, it's all very bad and very ugly, but it's um, it's driven uh, both before the war started and during the war. It's driven largely by the West and largely by the U.S. Uh, uh, at any point, the U.S. could have uh, sued for peace, but they wanted to keep supporting Zelensky. You know, people also talk about Zelensky and Ukrainian agency and a humanitarian war. This is there's no agency here. The U.S. disrupted whatever agency there was when they they were involved with Boris Johnson or let's just say the West generically hmm. and disrupted that peace treaty. Uh, it also, uh, 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 you know, as far as the humanita humanitarian war, it, it's craziness. I mean, you have, you know, tens and possibly hundreds of thousands of Ukrainians dying and being maimed due to the ongoing nature of this war because the U.S. does not want to have a peace treaty. Um, there's very little agency here and there's very little humanitarian. The uh, U.S., um, uh, a former U.S. Assistant Secretary of Defense, Chaz Freeman, has described the situation as uh, fighting to the last Ukrainian for Ukrainian independence. This really is a proxy war right on Russia's border being fought on battlefield Ukraine with, uh, frankly, a lot of Ukrainians serving as cannon fodder for U.S. and NATO purposes. Why is it ridiculous to believe that Russia is responsible for the <clears throat> Nord Stream attacks? You know, I don't want to go quite so far as to say it's ridiculous. Okay. Um, I think it's uh, it's unknown uh, who actually carried this out. But I think there's pretty strong reason to think that this was done uh, either by the U.S. or by Western forces, likely in collaboration with the U.S. Um, to start with, just to frame it, uh, Sorry, I'm talking blue streak here. I'm like, gotta catch my breath for a second. Let me grab a, a sip here for one second. Sure. <clears throat> First, for many years, the U.S. has been opposed to the Nord Stream pipelines. Uh, you know, the U.S. is very concerned that uh, countries in Europe, and especially Germany, might establish closer relationships with Russia, uh, that they are afraid that somehow, the way it's sometimes described is that Russia might peel Germany off from the uh, transatlantic alliance and establish a closer relationship with them. The US has been very opposed to this, has worked very hard to, uh, in various ways, prevent the Nord Stream pipelines from operating, from going into operation, uh, there have been threats of sanctions of all sorts to prevent these from going on. So that's the background. The U.S. for a long time has not wanted these pipelines. Then if you move forward to this year when Russia was massing troops on uh, the Ukrainian border, early uh, early February, uh, be you know weeks before the invasion, um, both uh, uh, President Biden and this same Victoria Newland I mentioned before, who was so involved in the overturning of the legitimately elected Ukrainian government in 2014, she has been now, I mean, she stays in government, gives you a sense of the nature of uh, how these policies have continued. 
she was elevated from Assistant Secretary of Defense to Undersecretary of Defense for Political Affairs. This is the number four, number four position in the State Department. Um, any case, Victoria Newland and even more so uh, Joe Biden in early February stated that if Russia invades, that one way or another, the, the uh, Nord Stream pipelines will be taken out. Uh, they used the term, uh, you know, uh, Victoria Newland said one way or another, they will not operate. And Joe Biden actually spoke about ending the pipelines. Um, and um, uh, you can find the videos of this online. Uh, I can you know, provide you links to that if you wanna pass it on to your, your readers. Any case, so the very fact that, uh, that these people, senior people, the president and the undersecretary of defense for political affairs stated that if Russia invades, this is gonna happen. And then Russia invades and then this happens, that gotta make you suspicious. Um, on top of that, there are other things that, that were going on. Uh, the U.S. Um, and NATO, uh, actually, this is just U.S., not NATO, carries out um, every year a set of naval military operations in the Baltic Sea. The Baltic Sea is the, the sea that, uh, that these pipelines pass under. They go from Russia under the Baltic, kind of passing by Sweden and Denmark, uh, and then land in Germany. And that's where the natural gas gets uh, passed, passed through. Every year, the US, the US basically controls the Baltic Sea. They have a set of military, uh, naval operations uh, called uh, BALTOPS, uh, basically Baltic operations. Uh, this is uh, a set of naval operations that's run by the US Naval Sixth Fleet, which operates out of Italy. It's a massive military, uh, massive military uh, training exercises. Uh, this year, one of the major operations that they uh, carried out had to do with anti-mine operations. This is where you use unmanned undersea vehicles, UUVs, to go down and place demolitions on mines that have been placed underwater, and you explode them. Uh, these are exactly the same kind of technology that one would use if one wants to blow up a pipeline. Mm. Now, this, uh, it so happens um, uh, uh, that these drills this year took place uh, near an island that is exactly where the pipelines passed by and where they the explosions took place. Mm. Um, uh, and it also turned out that the uh, one of the major ships that was involved in this operations, this is the Kearsage. It's a, an amphibious landing ship, you know, with helicopters and all kinds of other stuff, actually stayed in the area for almost a month after the operations ended. And just a few days before the uh, explosions of the pipelines, the Kearsage left the area. Um, and it's possible that the Kearsage was involved in uh, providing deep sea intelligence of that exact area uh, and that there were undersea demolitions. It's also possible that um, Poland, uh, that uh, Sweden, that possibly even Denmark were involved. Um, and the fact that the Polish, uh, that uh, Radek Sikorski, who again was uh, not only a is not only currently a European Parliament member, but is was a uh, basically the um, uh, Polish foreign minister, you know, said thank you, U.S suggests that the U.S. was involved in one way or another. Um, yeah, I've seen it suggested that they were thanking the U.S. for giving a heads <laughs> up like, that something like this could happen. And I guess that begs the question, Ben, because you uh, did not want to go as far as saying it's ridiculous to think that Russia 
was responsible for the Nord Stream attacks. What is the valid explanation if it was Russia? Because that's one that I can't wrap my head around. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, it's funny. I, I have to say, I, I haven't yet figured out exactly how I want to talk about this. Okay. Because on the one hand, I really do believe it, it was the U.S. I think the evidence uh, points to either the U.S. or U.S. support for the operation. Mm-hmm. That's my take of it. Um, but my take doesn't mean that there's 100% hard and fast evidence. Right. That's me personally, Ben Ablo, what I think happened or what I think probably happened. Um, uh, I don't think Russia had much motivation to do this. Um, uh, you know, first of all, this is their own infrastructure. This is a multi-billion dollar project. You know, what do they have to gain by blowing up their pipeline? Further, to the extent that it was blown up, uh, you know, if it was just shut down, they maintain leverage. They can say, you know, you in Germany, you're having a freezing cold winter. We can restart the pipeline. We can give you gas. But if you blow the pipelines up, you can't restart them. Now, as it turned out, one of the four lines remained operative. Each of these, Nord Stream 1, Nord Stream 2, is a duplex. It has two, two pipes within it. So both of the Nord Stream 1s were exploded. And one of the Nord Stream 2s were blown up. My guess is that whoever did this wanted to get all four, but, you know, uh, you know, uh, a couple hundred uh, feet under the sea uh, surface, you, you can make mistakes. Um, things sometimes just don't operate correctly. Um, but I don't really see much motivation for Russia. The only conceivable thing, and I haven't actually verbalized this before, and I haven't run it by knowledgeable people to see whether this even makes sense, is if Russia felt that somehow there was going to be a complete loss that that they could actually cause a total financial collapse in Germany by never restarting the pipelines, and they wanted to uh, have plausible deniability so they, they could say, you know, we didn't just not start the pipelines and cause Germany to collapse, uh, but they wanted to set it up so that they could not restart the pipelines, you could make a potential argument that they they blew it up for that reason. I don't think that makes sense because, as I said, number one, this is extremely valuable uh, material from them. Their, I think their primary motivation would be to try to use leverage on Germany and to maintain a stable relationship by offering to reestablish the gas line. But, you know, to some extent, I just played devil's advocate and said, if I wanted to really think this through and try to speculate on how it conceivably could even make sense. That's what I would say right now. And again, I may talk to somebody who knows more about this than I do, who says, no, that doesn't make sense for this reason. But, you know, I wanted to just be forthright about that. In the meantime, I'm going to replace ridiculous with far-fetched. Far-fetched. I like that. I like that. I would would go with that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Last question, Ben. For somebody who obviously studies this region as closely as you do and has uh, kept a close eye on the war as well, how concerned are you that Russia uses a nuclear weapon on Ukraine? And if that were to happen, what would it look like in terms of the tactical details and I guess just the overall destruction as well? Because that's obviously something that a lot of people are really concerned about right now. Yeah, I think it's right to be concerned that this whole thing could go nuclear. Um, I think that Russia would not contemplate using a nuclear weapon unless they felt that their vital interests were uh, at risk, uh, which might take the form of uh, an inv- they, they were concerned that they were vulnerable to a land invasion of Russia. 
that they were concerned that there might be some kind of Western-run uh, military coup uh, trying to overthrow Putin. The, uh, the question that's of most concern to me right now is that now that Russia has claimed sovereignty over these four areas, you know, the two Donbass areas and then the, the other two, uh, the concern is that if they truly consider that part of Russian territory now, and uh, the US and Ukraine and NATO are hell-bent on reacquiring those territories, um, I have a question in my mind, is it possible that Russia might actually use nuclear weapons to defend those territories? Now, the reality is that Russia is in a much better position militarily than NATO is. I mean, it's really right there. And up till now, they really have been fighting with one hand tied behind their back, and they just called up 300,000 reserves. So I don't think they're going to be in a position where their uh, conventional forces are going to be unable to defeat uh, attacks on these areas. So I think we're not talking about something that's imminent here. And Russia, I don't think, is crazy either. They realize that there's a potential for escalation, so that even if they have some short-term advantage to using a tactical battlefield nuclear weapon to you know, protect one of their new annexed territories, they know that this could go nuclear and cause a global from a nuclear war that would wipe out Russia. So nobody wants to use these weapons lightly. Uh, but I think the risk is higher than it had been. Uh, and it's high enough that we should be damn concerned. Um, so uh, I also have to say that Although the U.S. claims it would never use a nuclear, they would not use a nuclear weapon in this situation, I have some concerns. If it, if it in fact is the case that the U.S. and NATO, by virtue of geography, is in a much less able position to fight a true war in Ukraine uh, and they started to lose, would they consider a tactical weapon? Hmm. I mean, it seems that both sides, and this is what's so troubling and why I think a, a peace treaty uh, you know, starting with, I mean, peace treaty maybe makes it sound too big. Let's start with a ceasefire. Let's start with cessation of hostilities. Let's start with something that stops the fighting. And then we try to take it to the next level. Uh, this is one reason why this is so essential, because you have two, two places that view their vital interests. Actually, that's not correct. Russia views its vital interests as being on the line. I don't think by any stretch of the imagination, this is a vital interest to the U.S., um, but nonetheless, the U.S. has its ego at stake. It, it's, it, you know, you can imagine how it would feel its reputation would suffer if after all this it lost or it pulled out. So I think the U.S. is really afraid of having egg on its face. Mm. And, you know, these people might be willing to launch a nuclear war because they don't want to have egg on their face. And Russia certainly would consider using a nuke if they really felt that their survival was at stake. So this is extremely dangerous. How big are these weapons? Um, I don't know the exact smallest number of you know how these go. Some of them are selectable yields. Like I mentioned, the Tomahawks, you can dial up how high you want these things to go. These battlefield weapons, some of them are selectable or not. Some of them are just small. Uh, but they can be anything from, I think, uh, I'm going to go out on a limb here. Don't quote me on this. Let's say one-tenth of a kiloton which is equivalent to 100 tons of TNT, uh, probably up to 10 or 15 kilotons, which is probably like a Hiroshima-sized bomb. Um, and there's a full range. I'm guessing that the typical ones are, again, don't quote me, I'm kind of going by some old knowledge here, one to five kilotons. 
um, uh, anywhere between one tenth and one half, this one one tenth, and uh, let's say uh, one third or one half the size of the Hiroshima bomb. Uh, so you know you're talking about something pretty significant, um, and the real problem, of course, is uh, you know as bad as this would be by itself if there was an exchange of tactical nukes. You know where does this stop? Do you really think that Russia would use this? And the U.S. would kind of just allow its forces to be wiped out without doing something. Mm. You know, maybe saner heads would prevail. And at that point, the U.S. would do what, frankly, would be the smart thing to do is say, you just nuked our tank division. Uh, this could really get bad. Let's sit down at a table. Um, I would like to think that one side would do that. I don't have uh, a great level of trust that that would happen. I think what we've seen in this war at almost every stage is increasing escalation. I mean, you see it even in terms of uh, this bridge bombing. You know, what happens with the bridge bombing? Well, the bridge bomb, the bridge, the bombing of the bridge is one of the factors that led Russia to go ahead and finally decide to attack Ukrainian infrastructure in a serious way. Then Ukrainian hears about that and they say, well, that well, damned if we're gonna sit still for that attack. And the US says the same thing. They're now the, now they're interested in pouring more weapons in. So at every stage, you know, both sides have this kind of absurd fantasy that if the other, that if they attack the other side, the other side will back down uh, and do what in some sense might be the rational thing. But the reality is what the other side always does is up the ante and say, we're not going to be, ha be had. You know, if we cave in now, you know, what's going to happen next week? You know, we're going to be giving in to the, to the uh, you know, we're, we're caving in. So uh, I think it's very concerning that there could be a possible use of nuclear weapons and that this could escalate. And there's really no natural stopping point for an escalation. Uh, if it goes all the way up the ladder, you're talking about really the end of human civilization. Um, I mean, literally. Uh, and it could be the end of human life if you have a global uh, you know, nuclear winter sets in. Um, that could just kill everybody. Um, so we're really talking about the death of the planet from a human perspective. and. Um, the idea that people are are so um, cavalier about this war continuing, and you know we're going to fight, you know the evil Russians, and we're going to, um, uh, you know, even leaving aside the fact that this war is not Ukrainian agency and it's not a humanitarian war. It's it's a, as I said, it's a it's a it's a proxy war on battlefield Ukraine fought with Ukrainian cattle cannon fodder. But even if you were made all these generous assumptions about what this war was from the Western perspective, this thing has got to stop. Uh, there's way too much risk involved for this to be going on. Where can people find you online, Ben? Uh, yeah, good question. I mean, right now, the only online presence I really have is my book at Amazon. Um, I have a website which is almost uh, built. It's a website for the book which is almost built. I don't do uh, Facebook or Twitter or any of those things. I, I just don't have time. Well, and, I'm jealous. I'm jealous of that. Oh, yeah. I just, I, uh, whatever. Um, so I would say now, if you're interested, the best thing to do is get my book. I would say uh, you can get it by ebook also. It's just $2.99. Uh, I can actually give an email address that people can reach me directly if they want to. Sure. Um, that is B, uh, the first, uh, my first name is Benjamin. So it's B period dot. Abelo, A B E L O W dot two zero two two at gmail dot com. B dot Abelo, 
at gmail.com. Uh, you know, check out my book, uh, How the West Brought War to Ukraine. It's uh, kind of been a number one bestseller in a number of Amazon categories. Uh, it's uh, it's a good little book. It's not too expensive. So, And it's not too long either. You're right about that. I want to say it comes out to around 60 or 70 pages, and you really don't waste a whole lot of words. He is Benjamin Abelow. The new book is How the West Brought War to Ukraine, Understanding How U.S. and NATO Policies Led to Crisis, War, and the Risk of Nuclear Catastrophe. Ben, thank you so much for the time today, and thank you for this important book that provides a really nice level of nuance to one of the more serious things happening in the world right now. Thanks, Trey. It's been a pleasure being here. Thanks to Gentleman Jesus for the intro and outro music. Hear more of his work at GentlemanJesus.com. And thanks to you for hanging out. You can watch, listen, learn, and connect for free at BooksOnPod.com. For Books on Pod, I'm Trey Elling. Good day.